0: Liquid staking is gaining major traction ahead of Ethereum's Shanghai upgrade. Solana suffers a fresh major outage and the IMF says a crypto ban is not off the table. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital. Christine, welcome back to the show.
1: Hi Ash, great to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you. We're going to discuss the Shanghai upgrade staking and your report on maximal extractable value, of course, MEV. But first, let's take a look at the most recent price analysis. The overall crypto market cap is in the green today on CoinMarketCap.com. Bitcoin is up 1.5% for the past 24 hours. It remains down more than 5% on a trailing seven-day basis. One, Bitcoin's costs approximately... $23,500 $23,500 right now. 23500 US dollars. Ethereum is also trading higher today. It's up 2.6% from this time yesterday. Just like Bitcoin, it's been in the red for the past seven days. Ether is currently changing hands at $1,650. We're also keeping an eye on Solana. Sol, the native token of the Solana blockchain, is up slightly today. It's trading at $23 down heavily on a trailing seven-day basis. That's after another significant outage on the Solana blockchain. Details on that coming up in just one moment. And finally, one of the best performers on the day is Stacks. That's the ticker symbol STX, the protocol that aims to bring smart contracts to Bitcoin. Obviously, that's a bit controversial in the Bitcoin space. Uh, It continues to enjoy increased traction amidst an explosion of popularity of ordinals, the so-called Bitcoin NFTs. Now, before I speak to Christine, a word about our sponsor. This episode of Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. The Crypto App delivers everything you need to stay on top of the world of crypto and your own crypto holdings. It includes market-leading price tracker, portfolio manager, analytics suite, and newsfeed, as well as a wide array of customizable alerts and widgets. Crypto moves fast, so don't be left behind with over 4 million downloads. The crypto app is the market's leading app for all things crypto. With that said, let's bring in our guest. Christine Kim is a research associate at Galaxy Digital. Christine, let's get straight into the news. Liquid staking has uh, taken over lending as the second largest sector in the DeFi space. According to data from DeFi Llama cited by CoinDesk, the value of liquid staking has reached more than $14 billion. Only decentralized exchanges or DEXs had more deposits. Coindesk says that the upcoming Shanghai upgrade, which will allow people to withdraw Ether that's already been staked, has boosted interest in liquid staking. Christine, let's start with the basics here. Please explain what liquid staking is and what role the so-called Shanghai upgrade plays in all of this.
1: Yeah, um, so liquid staking is when you deposit your stake ETH or like deposit ETH into the beacon chain, which is Ethereum's consensus layer to earn staking rewards. Um, and normally when you do this, you have to lock up your ETH. You're not able to move your ETH around. You have to keep it deposited into the beacon chain. Um, there are smart contract protocols and other centralized exchanges that offer, um, that offer stakers an additional service on top of that. So when you deposit your ETH for, um, staking purposes to earn an interest, you get in exchange a token, a liquid staking token um, that ha- maintains, you know the the same value. It represents the staked eth that you have on chain. so it should hold the same value as that eth. And sometimes it even also um, rebases according to the rewards that you. Are, are earning on chain from your staking activity. Christine um, jargon
0: alert, define what rebasing is. That,
1: oh <laughs> that's a that's a good point. Um so rebasing is when you can either have those rewards um increasing in increment to the number of ETH that you have. So rebasing refers to if I have two ETH for every like two stake ETH, and then I get two um, versions of that liquid staking derivative token. And as the stake ETH starts to earn rewards, you can also have the balance of your liquid staking derivative increase in accordance to what you're earning on chain. So that kind of automatic rebasing happens with certain liquid staking tokens, but it doesn't happen with all. Um, If you look at the Coinbase staked um, liquid uh, staking token if you look at coinbase's uh, what happens is, is the value of your liquid staking derivative token um also um in- it just increases in value like the amount the nominal amount of that um coinbase ETH balance doesn't increase but the value should increase because it reflects um your stake eth on chain i know that sounds a little bit confusing happy to clarify but it's a difference between like is the balance of your liquid staking token increasing or is it the value of your liquid staking token that's increasing over time?
0: I think that's perfectly explained.
1: <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> it's a little bit of a complex topic, but yes, it depends so on is, the style.
0: This is CB ETH. This is the wrapped staked ETH uh, token that Coinbase has offered.
1: Yes. Yes. And there's others. So there's um, the most famous one, of, of course, Lido's. Uh, Lido's Steeth or Steth, as some people pr- call it, um, this is the the most liquid, the most um, popular popular liquid staking token out there, um, and it's only getting um, increasingly more popular the closer we get to Shanghai. Um, and Shanghai is the upgrade that will allow unlocks to happen. Um, people that have staked their ETH to ETH Ethereum since you know December 2020, when the Beacon Chain launched. We're not able to do any withdrawals um, from the issuance of that chain from um, any full withdrawals, like removing your 32 ETH stake from uh, the network. But with the Shanghai upgrade, that functionality will finally be
0: activated. Christine, you are obviously, as a researcher, a true expert in this, as our viewers and listeners can tell. So let's zoom out the camera a little bit uh, and start with the very basics here about where we are in this post-merge world. Obviously, ETH has moved uh, from its former consensus algorithm proof-of-work to proof-of-stake. Let's start with the very basics here. What is proof-of-stake? How does it work? And then we can talk about some of the uh, conclusions from your purport.
1: Yeah. Um, so the merge was Ethereum's transition to to a proof of stake consensus protocol, and essentially, um, what happened was the security providers of the network, which were previously miners, um, miners ran this algorithm, this mining algorithm that uh, required um, that required the security providers to um, to put in quite a lot of computational energy in order to progress the blockchain, in order to mine a new block, earn rewards, um, basically uphold the liveness and the security of the network. Um, But once Ethereum transitioned over to proof of stake, the security provider switched. It changed from miners to validators. And for validators, instead of running kind of intensive, computationally intensive software, um, they're running extremely, minimally intensive software um, and instead they all have to stake a minimum balance of 32e um, and so the collective stake of validators is what helps secure the network what allows validators to um, have the credentials to vote on the next block to the next block to um, participate and earn rewards from the beacon chain and from fees and from MeV, which we'll talk about later in this show. Um, so that was really like the biggest change. It was switching from mm. um, a system where the security is provided by miners and their equipment and their energy to a system to a blockchain that is now secured by validators and the mm. state that validators put into the network.
0: So let's talk a little bit big picture on what that shift means and what it does. So first of all, obviously it makes it much more efficient from the perspective of energy expended, Mm -hmm. Uh, proof of stake far more friendly in terms of the environmental footprint of this consensus algorithm. Uh, Second, obviously, uh, with this less processor intensive, it makes it uh, less cost intensive to maintain the overall network. Uh, and finally, it creates this opportunity uh, to create yield, an organic yield uh, within the network itself, as a consequence of the staking. Obviously, it's a two-sided market, so you have uh, you basically have this organic rate of interest being calculated uh, through uh, this this basically buyers and sellers, lenders and borrowers of the coins.
1: Right. And one thing I would add to that is because you don't have um, a ton of cost necessary to uphold the security of the chain, you just need a a lot of state or a certain amount of stake on on the network. um, The issuance of Ethereum has gone down significantly. So monetary policy was another big impact from Ethereum's transition to proof of stake in that the network no longer needed to issue, you know, like five ETH per block, three ETH per block, two ETH per block, Um, you no longer needed to maintain a a high level of of issuance. You could drop that issuance down significantly um, and still be able to incentivize um, these security providers to do the the work needed to to progress the chain.
0: So the general idea here is the cost to miners now validators is lower. uh, Therefore, you need to pay them less in terms of compensation in the organic, uh, in ETH itself. Uh, therefore, the monetary policy becomes less expansionary, uh, and therefore, in theory, uh, this pushes the value of the individual tokens higher because on a scarcity basis, Keteris Paribis, the less you have of something, the more valuable it becomes. Exactly. Okay, so let's now talk about what the thrust of this report is all about, which is MEV, uh, that's maximal extractable value. Let's talk a little bit about what that means uh, and why it's so crucial to understanding the tokenomics and the dynamics within the Ethereum network.
1: I I mean, MEV... One of the big things about the merge, um, I guess, there's actually been quite a lot of impacts from the merge because we're talking about like security and issuance. Another big impact was on MEV. Um, MEV is um, is it's MEV is a type of reward that validators can earn um, by ordering transactions in a specific way within a block. Um, anytime because there's so much um, financial activity on chain happening through um, lending apps, exchanges. Um, and and trading activity happening on chain, um, there's profit to be made by ordering those trades in a specific way. Um, And that's really what we call MEV. And and before the merge, MEV was primarily earned on one off-chain marketplace um, that was operated by Flashbots. And post-merge, we're seeing kind of an explosion of many different marketplaces uh, for earning MEV a lot more distribution of MEV infrastructure among different um, players. Um, The report dives into how the supply chain, how MEV moves through different actors, um, from searchers to builders, to relays, finally to the validator. can you define
0: get, some of those yeah. actors in the blockchain and explain a little bit about what that process looks like? Because as you just point out, obviously there are different roles uh, in Ethereum. Talk a little bit about which each one of those roles is and how it fits in the broader perspective of this, particularly for people uh, who may not be familiar uh, with this at nearly the level that you are.
1: Yeah. So they are different roles and they are represent different responsibilities. But oftentimes, you know, one actor will fulfill several responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And I... And one of the things that I predict is that because of the incentives of the supply chain, we're going to see a lot more centralization um, over time. Even though right now we are seeing um, quite a bit of competition, which is really great to see. What does um, that term I- of
0: art supply chain mean specific to the Ethereum network?
1: Um, so the supply chain. When I say the MEV supply chain, I mean like what are the actors? Who are the actors involved in creating MEV and earning MEV? Obviously, you've got the validator because the validator is the one who proposes the block to the network and earns the fees from the priority fees, uh, from the block reward. But the idea is that you don't want validators to become so specialized into earning MEV because that might create um, an imbalance between certain certain players that have the capital to search for meV opportunities um, and just continue to collect more yeah. uh, rewards than other validators outcompete them um, and then suddenly you know you've just got one or a handful of major validators that are constantly winning like the the block 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 proposals um, because they're able to spin up more um, validators um, from the rewards that they earn from MEV, and it's this kind of vicious cycle of centralization that developers and Flashbox team are trying to avoid. Um, So validators are the ones that propose the block, but you want the activity of searching for the MEV to be offloaded to a different party. And that different party is called searchers. Searchers search for MEV opportunities Um, on-chain. Maybe what you could do
0: is just walk us through a highly simplified example of how the assembly of blocks works, kind of the how a bill becomes a law for an Ethereum block, just to give people an idea of what these roles are and how they play the broader sort of role in the context of the development uh, of Ethereum uh, validation.
1: Yeah, sure. So at a high level, users send a transaction Say you want to send ETH to another person, um, you initiate that transaction on chain. Say I want to send you Ash like two ETH, that transaction, that that execution um, gets sent to something called the mempool, which is um a, a transient kind of pool of, of unconfirmed transactions, transactions right. that have not made it on chain. Um, And then validators will look at that pool of unconfirmed transactions. And each of them are valued in a different way because they have different priority fees attached to them.
0: Um, So this is the the gas fees you're talking about here and what the range is. This is when you set the range for a gas fee. Uh, For example, in your MetaMask wallet, uh, this is the transaction sort of uh, prioritization that you're talking about here.
1: Yes, exactly. And the higher that we put that range or put that um, fee, the more but more likely that the validator will prioritize your your transaction
0: um, sure, this makes sense it's just basic supply and demand economics if you pay a higher money, if if you pay a higher uh gas fee people are willing to uh essentially validate that transaction uh in a higher priority because it generates uh it generates more return for them
1: yes yes um that's that's normally how this this process works. You you enter your transaction, you submit your transaction, attach a fee according to how how um, high of a priority it is, and validators should order transactions within a block based on the fee. Um, however, <laughs> however, um, what happens is certain transactions um, are kind of um, you can identify um, financial. Opportunities where you can uh, make a profit off of ordering transactions in a specific way. So, say, arbitrage. You notice that the price of a certain asset on Uniswap is different from the price of an asset on a different decentralized exchange. And you want to make money off of um, bringing those prices back into balance.
0: Um,
1: And if the arbitrage.
0: Essentially, buying at the lower uh, price and selling at the higher price effectively.
1: Yes. And this could take multiple transactions. And this the size of the arbitrage opportunity, it, it depends on how you know, efficient your, your the DeFi markets are on a particular day, how much liquidity there is. Um, but these are the opportunities that searchers are looking for. Um, there's also opportunities where um, searchers may identify uh, user trades that can be sandwiched or front run and back run. Um, all of this happens by I, by looking at the mempool. You look at user transactions, and you kind of identify these opportunities where a profit can be made, where MEV can be extracted.
0: So, talk about this because this front running, back running is really the essence of what uh, miner extractable value is. Excuse me, maximum extractable value is all about. Uh, so, talk about a little bit about what they're doing and how those transactions get ordered, and why it generates uh, those positive returns for them.
1: So. It's very similar, actually, to traditional finance. If you think about, if you think about um, these strategies that searchers are deploying, um, once the strategy is identified, once you understand that there is an arbitrage opportunity here, um, there are dedicated marketplaces where you can auction off these bundles. You call them a transaction bundle because oftentimes you need to. Um, the ordering of the transactions is so specific that you want them to be executed in that order alone. And only then will you be able to get that value extracted. Um, And so those bundles are then sent to um, these off-chain marketplaces called relays. Um, And within the relay, you've got other entities called builders that are packaging uh, multiple different bundles from different searchers and um, trying to create the most valuable block. Um, so if I know that I I have a bundle that gives like 0.5 ETH arbitrage opportunity, and then I've got another bundle that gives me say 0.2 ETH sandwiching like value from a sandwiching um, from a sandwiching bundle, and I'm able to kind of organize and like package in as quickly as possible a, re- a really good valuable block, and that block is then submitted over to a validator. So the builder is. Is not itself, you know, searching for these MEV opportunities, but the builder is the one that's packaging the bundles from searchers, creating a block, and then submitting it over to a validator. Um, and this kind of complexity, like this level of trying to, trying to identify um, MEV opportunities, trying to identify the actors that are, are, are playing in this MEV game, can get very murky, because. You've got, you've basically got these actors that are pseudonymous and you're not entirely sure if they're also participating in other activities. Um, and this kind of complexity has really increased, I think, um, past after the merge, um, because of the diversification of actors that have suddenly entered into the space. Um, so yeah.
0: Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back.
2: Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why?
0: And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, You've got no issue with visibility or anything. Nah, everything's peachy.
2: Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving.
0: Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of the air force walk.
2: Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast.
0: 512C declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 3-1-Lap.
2: We have the most interesting, wild and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: Christine, that's spectacularly explained. I think uh, for folks uh, who are watching this, it's very, very hard to be able to do what you're doing right here, which is to explain this incredible degree of technical and financial slash economic complexity uh, in language that lay people can understand. Uh, This is uh, one of these fields where people increasingly talk to each other uh, who understand the way this works. So it's so important to be able to have conversations like this, I think, uh, to get people the information uh, that you have Uh, out there into the world. So let's talk a little bit about the focus of this report, uh, the new things that have happened, the changes in MEV that you focus on in your report, Christine.
1: Yes. Um, So the changes are are really that um, we've got many new actors that have entered into the space. Um, As I was explaining about how searchers are identifying MEV opportunities like front-running, back-running, sandwiching, and... um, bundling those transactions together from the mempool and submitting them to a different marketplace. That marketplace used to be a single marketplace, Um, but now you've got several. Um, Some are operated by uh, blockchain infrastructure companies like um, BlocksRoute and BlockNative. Um, They've got their own relays, and searchers are submitting their bundles to those relays, not only to the Flashbots relay, and within those relays, you've got the builders. Th- these are no- another new type of actor that are specialized in block building, um, You know, bringing together bundles from different searcher sources and then putting those together into a block. Um, you've got validators. Validators were not security providers before the merge. Validators were really only securing the beacon chain and the beacon chain was not responsible for consensus of Ethereum. So you've You've got entirely new actors there with validators, different dynamics for validator competition. Um, instead of mining pools, you've got staking pools, you've got liquid staking derivatives. Um, so yes. so so I would say like those are the biggest changes. You've got new actors in this system um, that for the first time are are really earning um, quite a bit of money from um, meV. Granted, MEV is very based on decentralized finance activity. Like the amount of MEV that you earn often goes up when you've got a lot of financial activity happening on chain, um, and and decentralized finance activity as of late has been a, a a little bit you know on the on the decline, not doing great because of the a current you know bear market that we're in. But I think that DeFi activity will will increase over time, and so um, this is a big area of competition that I think people should um, watch out for and, and
2: keep watching.
0: Uh, Christine, let me ask you this. We've talked a little bit uh, about Flashbots and the outsized role that they've played in Ethereum historically. Uh, give us a little bit of a context on what Flashbots is and the role they play in Ethereum uh, historically and now uh, in this sort of post-merge uh, world.
1: Yeah, so Flashbots has been one of the leaders in uh, MEV research and development. They were the ones that identified MEV as a problem, uh, MEV as a potential centralization, um, a force that would um, create centralization on chain. And they started to build products that really took off. It changed the MEV landscape um, um, in such such. Big ways. I mean, the first way was, you know, I was talking to you about how when searchers identify an opportunity in the mempool, they send it to an off chain marketplace. Before, they, these miners were really, uh, these searchers were really, you know, um, bat- auctioning off their bundles on chain through the public mempool um, directly. And that was causing gas fees to spike. Um, that was, um, you know, making it really hard for user transactions to land on chain because they were competing with these other. Very financially motivated, more sophisticated actors like searchers and flashbots created a marketplace where all of that activity eventually moved to, or most of it, like 90%. Um, they also innovated this, um, they basically created MEV Boost software, which allowed right. for validators to connect to multiple relays instead of just one. Um, Christina, so I want to I- jump
0: in because I have one other question I want to ask you before we move yeah. on to some other news here, uh, which is about this idea of how these transactions get included. One of the questions I think it's Sam Kessler over at Coindesk uh, has raised and that I've been thinking about is this question of uh, managing the OFAC compliance. This is a specially designated national list that OFAC, that's the Office of Foreign, mm-hmm. Foreign Asset Control at Treasury, uh, who are essentially sang- the primary mm-hmm. sanctions regulator here in the United States. Uh, when you have all of these transactions, and one of this is a, a sort of a a philosophical theoretical question uh, at present, but something that I think could have significant, significant implications for Ethereum uh, further down the line, which is what happens, you know, if you go up to the Ethereum website uh, and you command F for credible neutrality and uh, censorship resistance, these are two of the ideals that are most important on the Ethereum network, this idea that transactions can't be censored uh, and that all actors on the network get treated equally. Uh, In this world, what are the risks that you see for potentially sanctioned entities participating in transactions. Obviously, uh, there's this phenomenon called slashing if you don't include a transaction on the blockchain. Uh, talk a little bit, uh, if you would, about some of those issues about sanctions enforcement uh, that may be coming for Ethereum.
1: Yeah, so slashing on on Ethereum is um, generally happens when, when validators um, are identified to break the rules of the network. And certain rules are enforced as in a validator should not be proposing two blocks at a time. They should only propose one at a time. There are other rules on the network that are not encoded So the way that a validator might exclude or include certain transactions is not enforced by the network. If you want to prioritize transactions by priority fee, that's up to you as a validator. If you want to accept a block from a builder um, that takes out transactions that are harming users. So if users are being sandwiched, this builder gives you a block. But what if it's not a
0: a, a sort of an MEV? sort of economic issue, but what if you have effectively an actor on a blockchain who's been sanctioned by the U.S. government and you exclude that transaction? Uh, what are the implications then for the overall sort of stability of the network? If you have that kind of issue where you have essentially the, the rules of the blockchain conflicting with the rules of, of the land? It's a very challenging question.
1: Yes. So if you have if you have all actors, say validators, that are refusing to include a transaction from a sanctioned entity because they are um, operating under U.S. law and believe that they would be putting their like employees in danger, putting their lives in danger, um, livelihoods in danger by accepting certain transactions within a block, that network would be censoring. Um,
0: right. And
1: that would go against the biggest values that Ethereum
0: holds. Right. Yeah, it's really a challenging and uh, very much an open question about how this is going to shake out in the future. And I suspect that it's one we're going to be talking about a great deal more. But I want to move on to some other news because we have some. One uh, thing,
1: though. Yeah, go ahead. To be clear, that's not happening on Ethereum now. Like, I think if all validators were censoring um, transactions from sanctioned entities, like that would definitely be a concern um, of the network. But to be clear, that is not happening on Ethereum today.
0: So so what does happen when a sanctioned entity attempts to include a transaction? How do the validators manage it today?
1: So there is a percentage of validators that are not accepting blocks from builders that are censoring transactions or relays that are censoring transactions. They are directly taking transactions from the mempool, the public mempool that anyone can submit transactions to, including sanctioned entities.
0: So so that means if those validators are then validating those blocks that have sanctioned entities in them that are in the mempool, you know what happens when one of those validators is, for example, uh, a U.S. corporation that has, uh, you know, uh, U.S. directors and officers are associated with it. Uh, have they then ex- opened themselves up to uh, not just uh, civil litigation but potential criminal jeopardy? I think that's an open question, isn't it? I mean, it's, I, it's one that's I don't have an answer to certainly.
1: It is an open question, but that is the reality of what's happening today. So, Coinbase, as a running Ethereum validator, they are validating prior historical blocks that contain, oh, that contain um, transactions from Tornado Cash, that contain user transactions that have interacted with the Tornado Cash protocol. Um, this is happening today. All all U.S. based entities that are running validators on behalf of other users are verifying not only, you know, the validity of blocks that do not contain any, you know, uh, OFAC censored transactions, like any sanctioned entities transactions, but they're also validating blocks that do. This is the, this is the idea of like one canonical chain. And I think if at any point in time where these U.S. companies don't feel comfortable doing that, they will have to There will have to be like two different chains. Like there would, there would have to be a split.
0: Essentially a chain split, right. And there's no safe harbor under the law, at least as I understand it, I'm not an attorney, uh, for basically verifying or validating those historical transactions. So it's just one more sort of aspect of this that I find fascinating. I could talk about this all day, but I wanted to move on here to talk about some other news outside of the Ethereum uh, network. Moving on from Ethereum to an ETH competitor, Solana is back up and running after another outage over the weekend. The Solana Foundation says the reason is yet unknown. Coindesk, Says on Saturday, transaction settlements slowed down so much that the blockchain effectively ground to a halt. New blocks were not being produced on Solana and transactions were not being validated. This means that users were not able to move their funds off the network, engineers twice tried to restart the whole network, which had recently gone through an upgrade. The outage attracted a lot of criticism on Twitter, probably no surprise there. This is not uh, of course, the first outage for Solana in recent years. Christine, what's your take on what this on what's happened here uh, and on Solana more widely? I know this isn't something that you follow as closely as eth,, uh, but do you have a take on this?
1: Um it's hard to say without knowing exactly what caused the outage, but I think um the fact that this isn't the first time, that this is one of several outages in Solana's history, uh, does really make you question and wonder if the way in which Solana um, supports cheap and fast transactions is inherently unsustainable and unreliable. If the network is continuing to um, have a very like repetitive track pattern, like a history of outages, um, and I think the co-founder of Solana on this show, I think um, Raul might have interviewed him. He had said that it's a curse of Solana that you know because Solana is able to support cheap and fast transactions. Um, you know, one of the byproducts of that is that they have these outages. Um, I think Solana will need to to contemplate you know some serious changes to its tech stack um, to alleviate these these frequent outages. Um, while still maintaining their promise of cheap and fast transactions or, you know, continue as is with outages and just like and and have it become the, more the norm um, for users to expect that on chain
0: boy that's a deep criticism of the uh, core tech stack over uh, at solana it's interesting i think that was anatoly yakovenko who is here on real vision with yeah, us, both so. me and Raoul. uh but again really interesting and a big another big picture question i wanted to move on to uh this story this is uh, quite an interesting one uh, breaking here this morning uh the head of the international monetary fund or imf says banning crypto outright should not be off the table In an interview with Bloomberg IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Georgieva says a ban is an option if regulation is slow to come and crypto assets become a threat to financial stability. Uh, Georgieva praised CBDCs, that's of course Central Bank Digital Currencies, because she says they're backed by the state and are therefore more reliable in her view. The IMF has recently published a nine-point plan for crypto regulation. One other notable interview on the subject came from New York Magazine. It spoke with Gary Gensler, the chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Gensler said, Every crypto transaction, apart from buying spot Bitcoin and purchasing goods or services with crypto, falls under the definition Of a security and thus the sec's supervision Uh, christine what do you make of this recent regulatory push some interesting statements there uh from chair gensler and also from the head of the imf
1: yeah lots of really interesting uh regulatory actions happening um especially in the us but also around the world i think the statement in particular from the imf um shouldn't be read too deeply, it it wasn't super surprising to me. It didn't sound like they were they were um, suggesting that cryptocurrencies should be banned, but just that in their very very early investigations, they're considering all possibilities. Like that was kind of like the tone in which I took that um, news story. I think that um, as the IMF and as these regulatory agencies do more research on cryptocurrencies and do more research on the impact of crypto on financial services, traditional financial services. Um, I hope that their, um, I hope that their, um, the result of their investigations would would come out positive.
0: Yeah, it is also this question that supranational organizations also don't have direct sovereignty, I think, or the ability to ban things that would probably have to happen at the nation-state level. Again, I am not a lawyer uh, and definitely not an expert in uh, international law, but one expects that if there were a ban, it would probably have to happen uh, at the nation-state level. Talking of which, uh, this idea of the users, there are a lot of them. A new survey from the U.S. Exchange Coinbase shows that 20% of Americans own crypto. The survey of 2,000 Americans showed a majority uh, feels there are significant issues with the financial system, which urgently need addressing. Coinbase says the ownership of crypto assets was largely unchanged from early in 2022, so obviously year over year, despite what a tumultuous year for the space this one has been the last 12 months. Uh, so I guess that is kind of an interesting uh, notion that there is clearly demanding concerns with the traditional financial system, at least according uh, to that Coinbase survey. Okay, I guess you could say that the number there of... Uh, People surveyed 2,000 is a little bit low, uh, so we can question, I guess, what the broader significance of that is. By the way, speaking of adoption, the block has flagged an interesting project in Japan. Several Japanese conglomerates are building a new joint metaverse. Uh, Fujitsu and Mitsubishi are among the companies working on a, quote, metaverse economic zone, close quote, for the country. The aim is to build the space for, quote, information dissemination, marketing, and work style reform for domestic enterprises. The experience is supposed to resemble a role-playing game. And finally, The Defiant says there was some feverish activity on the NFT marketplace Blur over the weekend. A collection called Machi sold more than 1,000 NFTs for $18 million. Uh, He then bought NFTs for 14 million dollars, one analyst called this quote the largest NFT dump ever close Quote. Notably, the floor price of the collections did not move significantly, suggesting perhaps, I guess, a robust liquidity in that space. The transactions come as Blur, an NFT marketplace a newcomer, has been crushing OpenSea on trading volume. Christine, any thoughts on any of these stories?
1: I think it'll be the the battle between OpenSea and Blur is a is a really interesting one to me. Um, I really think that. Um, the current surge in volumes is uh, because of, Blur, of Blur's token drop, the Blur token. Um, interesting to see what happens when you don't have that kind of incentive program for people to uh, for people to be um, trading on the Blur platform. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much of that uh, activity sticks with Blur, um, even beyond its its token drop incentive program.
0: Okay, Christine, looks like we've got a lot of questions flowing in from the audience uh, that they would like to ask you. This one comes from Kevin Walter on the Real Vision website. Uh, Perhaps Ms. Kim could comment on how all the recent changes for ETH could affect the probability the SEC declares uh, ETH a security or not. Uh, I would say this is the $64,000 question, but it's more like, I guess, the half trillion dollar question uh, when you net out Bitcoin from the total aggregate market cap of crypto. Christine, any thoughts on how these changes have an impact on whether or not uh, the probability increases or decreases that SEC declares ETH a security? Obviously, comments from Mr. Gensler uh, suggest uh, that the uh, it is uh, more likely, I suppose, than not.
1: I think the SEC's actions as of late have been um, differentiating between the um, services, like the liquid-staking services that are being built on top of Ethereum and Ethereum as a as a token and as a as a blockchain, um, I think Ethereum remains one of m- remains the most decentralized general purpose blockchain in the world. Um, so that I think is a really big one of the the big reasons for why I don't think that Ethereum it, should be considered a security. And um, and and I I really think that focusing on some of the enforcement actions that have come out of the SEC as of late. Um, that have really targeted um, liquid staking uh, services on top of, of, of Ethereum. Um, those ones, I think, will definitely change the game in terms of, of um, in terms of who who gets you know the biggest stake of the of the staking as a service uh, competitive landscape. I think we're going to see more competition move to entities that are offshore, like Lido, um, Kraken. I think. Shutting down its U.S. staking operations, it gives a a big question as to whether other U.S.-based companies like Coinbase will be able to continue their staking operations, Um, which, again, I think may push a lot of staking activity to happen with staking providers that are based offshore.
0: Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Okay, two separate questions coming to us from Ralph H., one of our regular viewers here on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. This is coming from the Real Vision website. The questions are, uh, first, what is the stake of, state of Ethereum Classic? Uh, and second, what is Eigenlayer?
1: Those are two very different questions, but I love it. Um, <laughs> Ethereum Classic, um, I, ha- I, don't, I don't know what the latest is on Ethereum Classic other than it did... a a pretty big pump along with Ravencoin and ETHPOW um, in the weeks leading up to the merge. And then a lot of that activity kind of fizzled out. Um, I believe that the hash rate, I believe that the mining activity on these alternative um, proof of work coins. To Ethereum, I believe that the hash rate is still somewhat elevated because the mining activity that happened on Ethereum had to move somewhere. Um, but it'd be interesting to to take a look again on on what's happening with the mining activity. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a more specific update on on some of the things happening on Ethereum Classic. Uh, EigenLayer is a restaking protocol that is being developed on Ethereum. It's basically allows um, validators to Um, set their withdrawal credentials to the Eigenlayer smart contract. And the smart contract will um, enforce additional slashing requirements on that validator if they um, misbehave. And those additional slashing requirements would allow them to to restake their stake ETH to securing a different protocol. So, Mm. So it's this idea of not only using Ethereum's security and decentralization for native Ethereum uh to secure the native ethereum blockchain but also to secure other applications and protocols
0: it sounds a lot like eigenvectors which i never understood
1: eigenvectors
0: yeah it's like a really linear algebra term for
1: like
0: um, Oh. yeah i never it, i never got that far in math okay
1: um, I, first time i'm hearing of that but it could be named after some mathematical
0: i, sus- it. I suspect it probably <laughs> is uh, here's some YouTube questions. This one comes to us from Bandit8899 on YouTube. Do you expect confidence in ETH staking to boost and thus the percentage of ETH stake to increase post-Shanghai upgrade? Great question.
1: Yes, I do. I really do. I think we're already starting to see that activity on-chain um, in the weeks coming leading up to Shanghai now that developers are... are I think close to, they're gonna be launching the second public testnet for Shanghai tomorrow. So um, yes, I I do think that we're gonna see a lot more staking activity happen.
0: Okay, one more from Bandit. He's throwing you in the crossfire on this one, Christine. Uh, What is your take on Stacks being built on Bitcoin? Do you consider it to be an ETH competitor?
1: That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> I think the programmability of Bitcoin and even the Stacks protocol is significantly less developed than what's on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. But, however, there is a, a, a place for Bitcoin NFTs, and I think it's so exciting to see uh, more experimentation on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, I think the the recent pump in Stacks is, a, is slightly, slightly misguided just because... Um, It's not clear how much of the NFT infrastructure on Bitcoin will be built on Stacks. Um, But I do think that a lot of other infrastructure could be built by Stacks developers. Um, So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. I I love to see it on Bitcoin. Do I think that it'll compete significantly with Ethereum? No. Um, But there could be a niche environment for something like Bitcoin NFTs.
0: Okay, final question. William S. on the Real Vision website. Oh, it looks like this question is for me. Is Ash sporting a new hairstyle? Yes. (laughs) Christine, uh, it's always great to have you on. Uh, You really are one of the true experts in this space uh, at explaining some of these very, very complicated ETH concepts uh, to uh, lay people. Uh, I find it very helpful when you break this all down for me, and I'm sure our audience does as well. Uh, great conversation, as always. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with?
1: Key takeaways, I think, is number one, the MEV supply chain has become increasingly more complex since the merge. And because of that, um, there are greater risks for centralization to happen on chain. Um, so, so, keeping an eye on MEV activity, especially as DeFi activity picks up, is is an important conversation and narrative to follow on Ethereum. And um, and then I think the second thing is that once Shanghai happens, or I, actually not even like once Shanghai happens, but with staked um, ETH unlocks happening very soon, we will um, likely see a greater inflow of staking activity on Ethereum. Um, so. And, and so, I think that will also kind of—that's um, also like a big trend to be to be watching for and, and keeping an eye on.
0: I'm going to keep my key takeaways here really short. Obviously, this is an incredibly interesting time for the Ethereum ecosystem. A lot of complexity. And final key takeaway: We really need to have Christine Kim on more often to have these conversations uh, because I think her reports break down all of these new developments incredibly well. Christine, thank you again for coming on with us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Ash.
0: Uh, really a pleasure to do this. But viewers, we're not done yet. I want to bring in my colleague Elaine Lee to talk about a very special Real Vision initiative, the RV Collective. Elaine.
2: Ash, you know, it's it's always so nice just to watch the show rather than do it. You figure out that you're learning so much when you get to relax and enjoy the show.
0: I wouldn't know. <laughs>
2: Is you are here for the ride uh, Monday to Friday every day but I love that um, just listening to Christine I really was taking some really valuable notes All right. so um, the Real Vision Collective here's an, a very important announcement we have a little bit about 4 hours left until the pre-mint allow list closes now why are there so many allow lists we hear you it's confusing we don't know what to do there's partners allow lists Look, let's just say there are different allow lists because we look after our Genesis holders and partners. And you know exactly what this is all about, Ash. It's the beating pulse of RV to democratize finance is what we're trying to put under this big umbrella in web three. Um, Ash, believe it or not, you and I have almost spent two years talking about blockchain tech and how it's building out the new infrastructure to finance. Can you believe that?
0: I know. It's hard to believe. Two years. It's just flown (laughs) by. It's bad of an eye.
2: And you know where I stand. I truly believe that NFTs are the gateway to the blockchain industry for a lot of uh, normal people out here who are not into crypto at all. If you can add the layer of culture onto it, it really speaks to the, that person's skin in the game, so to speak. So as you know, Real Vision here every day has been building, onboarding and welcoming people more into Web3, no matter what kind of level you are on, what kind of journey that brings you into this space. And Ash, I was was just at a birthday party over the weekend and I was breaking out a hot sweat because I just spent so long in the corner talking to five, six um, people who are in their fifties and seventies. And just really, they want to learn, but they this <laughs> their um, sons or daughters just gave up on explaining it to them, but it keeps people's minds alive, right? So, Here's the thing, we are releasing another NFT called the Real Vision Collective. Um, This is uh, on top of our Genesis. There's three NFTs that will be available. The art is a mashup of nine big communities that are already big players in the space. And we are basically continuing the narrative of network value here. Everyone who comes into the NFT space one of the most common questions that you get asked is, well, which NFT should I buy? Which community should I start with? So the nine NFTs that we've gone with are sort of the big players that have really made their mark out in this space, really put their foot through the door of amplifying what Web3 actually means. So we are, I would say the Real Vision Collective is basically shaking up the echo chamber, if you'd like. So over the past 72 hours, Ash, I've just had more followers following me on Twitter since the announcement. And this is the beauty right at Real Vision, we keep the conversation of dialogue of crypto going on every day. And I tweeted out this very simple thing, which is, how do we onboard the next billion into Web3? And the answers that were in that thread were so meaningful. And they should be at a space that we can continue the dialogue off a Twitter timeline. So Real Vision will hopefully become the place for that. Um, the answers that I got from that tweet was, Keep the user experience simple, and it's Bessie out there. It's overwhelming, but at Real Vision, we're always one degree of separation from the experts in crypto who know, as you can watch the show, just go out there, Um, just the guests that we usually have on, they enjoy most when they have when their brains are picked on and showing what they know and learn about the space right so ash you and i keep that dialogue on the crypto daily uh, briefing show every day and owning one of the rv collective nfts will provide you know real life value for our community i just came out of a shoot uh, with two community members and i would almost call them my web3 co-workers because over this past year you know we read each other's comments we like emoticons shit posts every Day. my point is that when you find yourself in the right community it's a great space that will bring to you a wealth of value and our community at Real Vision are the experts and here's the thing if you've been with us since launch um since the pro crypto launch, and we constantly work to expand the network, you should be very well aware that the today's price is a little bit of uh, over three e for the RV Genesis uh, collection. And you know, with this new launch, it's just going to bring more tons of people uh, into our ecosystem. And uh, let's just say tomorrow is uh, the minting season, and it's when you get to mint. And it's going to be one hell of a ride.
0: Elaine, it's great to have you join us on the show and great to have you come in and of course, bring us up to date uh, on everything that's happening at Real Vision. Really appreciate it. Any final points you want to make before we head out?
2: Look, uh, my final point is is we know it's complicated space. It's hard, but things take a few more efforts to try it. Do it. Attach it. Reattach it. Try it again. Shut down. Clear the cachet. It's a complicated space. It's a new space. But what the most amazing thing is, if you Um, If you are building in Web3 organically and natively, when things marry up together, it's so beautiful to watch because the speed that it comes at you is a fantastic thing to see. And just keeping up with our community members over the past year, I've just seen how they've grown over this past year, how they're navigating the space and really claiming that and have become the experts. And that's truly like fascinating For me to watch as real-life experience examples um, that we are learning on this experience with blockchain technology.
0: Uh, Elaine, once again, thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Ash. This episode of Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. The Crypto App is your place for all things crypto. Download the Crypto App today on Google Play or iOS App Store. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Bitco CEO Mike Belshi and Nico Corder from Strix Leviathan will be joining us. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific noon eastern 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody.